Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 116 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday, April 2nd. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I was thinking one of these days we should, like, let me go first, right? Hello, I'm not Bobby. Oh, we should absolutely do it. Maybe we should mix up our music, too. No. I, I do like the music. Uh, well, I, it's not that I like the music. It's that the amount of work that went into together the music seems like effort I don't want to duplicate. And, and we have an overlapping consensus. <laughs> Stay with the status quo. Do, do as little work as possible to make this podcast happen. No, no, no. Stick with the stuff you know. Um, I'll be curious to see if any listeners can guess what that line's from. I, I, I can't place it at the moment. So we'll, yeah. we'll find out. Okay, yeah. anyway. Um, speaking of sticking with things we know, I have zero teams in the Final Four. I got one, got one, and it's not the one <laughs> I think not, we expected. <laughs> I, I'm feeling pretty proud about my Texas Tech final. Go Red Raiders. So. Uh, very excited for Lubbock. That's pretty cool. Um, there's a lot going on. There is. I was a little worried we wouldn't have a lot to talk about this you week. You always worry about this, and I, I never do. do. Well, when there's not like, you know, I want like there to be a, an AUMF bill or something kind of classic to discuss, but we have some, we have in a way, some uh, a throwback individual that we might throwback. have been talking about. If we had had this podcast uh, 12 years ago. Can you imagine certainly... if we had this podcast 12 years ago? <laughs> we should do – I remember early on I thought we should do an episode where we just pretend it's another time. Yeah. Uh, but going way back, like 200 years ago, and just <laughs> as, as if we had the technology and we are contemporaneously narrating some event, you know, it's, Little versus Bream. I was going to say, it's, it's 1804, and the Supreme Court has just handed down in longhand we'll have, its, its decision. And, and now versus, let's talk about Jefferson Landia and the craziness and shenanigans. You know, that, that Aaron Burr guy, he's up to no good. Oh my God, the vice president has shot somebody. Treason trial. Let's try it for treason. You know what? We should totally do this. I'm, I'm down. But not right now. You know, we could have like an Aaron Burr themed episode. Interesting. Where where we focus on you know the the Burr conspiracy and the, I mean it has you you mentioned right the Aaron Burr treason prosecution in our yeah, in our deep absolutely. dive into the state secrets privilege right. because it figures prominently in the the early application of you know the privilege. We do need some more deep dives. We've been entirely too uh, current events focused lately. Well, that's not our fault. That's the news. Exactly, dude. it is. But uh, w- here we are again because the news once again is full of chock full of national security law interestingness. So, so what are we doing today? We've, our, our first one is the uh, suddenly newly relevant uh, situation with Adam Hassoun. Uh, There's who, a name that I really did not think I would hear again. Well, it looked familiar when I saw it, and it took me a while to place it. Uh, Twelve years ago, we were all paying attention because he was Jose Padilla's co-defendant, one of two co-defendants. Indeed, he was the lead defendant. The case was called the United States versus Hassoun. And then Jose Padilla got shunted into the civilian criminal justice system after his time in military custody. Uh, so Coincidentally, he, on the eve of the Supreme Court's consideration of his cert petition in, in Padilla in, too. Indeed. In fact, we could do a deep dive just on the Padilla case. We really could. Good. We really, really uh, could. We'll get a piece of it or an echo of it now because his sentence is up and he's out, which is a thing His we, being Hassoun. Hassoun, yes, indeed. Not not Jose Padilla. He's, he's not moved in next door to you. Uh, and nor has Adam Hassoun because he's kept in custody. We're going to talk about what's going on with him staying in custody for quite a while now, despite the, uh, the end of his sentence. They're having trouble removing him, and some very interesting legal things are now afoot, and some litigation too. So the Hassoun litigation. Uh, then we're going to pivot to a story that uh, Charlie Savage had in the New York Times. Char- Charlie also had the Hassoun story. Oh, that's right, actually. This, this, is, this, this, is, this, is, this, Savage, this is a Charlie uh, Savage episode. Yeah, we, we, we just sort of elaborate uh, on our thoughts on things Charlie published. Right, we react to Charlie. That's basically the whole course, the courses we teach. And thank you, Charlie. Keep Indeed. us in business. 
Uh, really, like there are a handful of journalists who <laughs> really do keep us in right. business. Charlie, Carl Rosenberg, Josh Gerstein, Ellen Nakashima. There's yep. there's a bunch of great ones. Um, Katie Bill Williams. In this case, yeah. If we start if we start going on the list, especially I know if, we're going to leave someone off. Yeah. And they're going to be really pissed at yeah, us. We love you all. Indeed. Uh, Equally. So Charlie's story that I have in mind here is the the DEA uh, using their subpoena authority. It turns out up until just around oh what was it the summer of 2013 what's that something significant there the, uh, what, some of this is a snow were we snowed in was there a there was a snowstorm yeah. there's a snowden storm we uh now know about a program this was revealed by the dea inspector general maybe it was doj i don't know um but charlie reports that they were using uh, subpoena authority to uh, collect on an untargeted or relatively untargeted basis uh, sales information about who the customers were who were buying cash counting machines. So we're going to talk about that. And, and my favorite little tidbit in the story is the attorney general who initially signed off on this program, Bill Barr. There you go. Okay. During his first tenure. Oh, fascinating. All right. Um, oh, wait. Are, are you sure about that? Am I, am I conflating different DEA record pro- programs? Uh, possibly, because I think this oh. one starts in 2008. Oh, there's a different DEA. There's a, I'm sorry, I'm conflating headlines. There was a different story that Brad Heath broke oh, right, I don't know about a one. DEA surveillance program like a, um, that, that was also, I think, discussed in the same Inspector General report, maybe a different Inspector General report, that was launched by then Attorney General and once, then and once again Attorney General Bill Barr. The, <laughs> I, I was, I'm trying to come up with the acronym. Darn, everything's amazing, DEA. That, that, Darn, that? everything's amazing. As opposed that, to no such agency. <laughs> there you go. Or not secret so, anymore. So we'll actually have a lot to say about the DEA. And then uh, continuing the fun, we're going to take note of a, of a recent development that's, this is in the nature of teeing up some future coverage and connecting it to some prior coverage in the uh, Zidon and Kareem uh, litigation. Uh, Bilal Kareem and Ahmed Zidon had filed suit back in uh May 2017, alleging that they were on a kill list in Syria, that the U.S. government was trying to kill them and trying to get an injunction, uh, trying to get injunctive relief. We've covered it before after the first motion to dismiss uh, On the political out. question doctrine. And, and now we're back. Uh, well, there were a bunch of arguments and just disability document uh, arguments. But, but the, and I mean, stand, the, the, and standing, and standing that's yeah. right. Um, but now we're back with state secrets privilege, and the court has not ruled yet, but there's there's been filings on both sides, so we're going to tee up that issue. Uh, and then, how about sort of slightly off topic, perhaps? But you know, with without First Mondays out there to to give us all a clear place to to talk about Supreme Court stuff, we will uh, sort of stretch our boundaries to talk about a, a Supreme Court decision, uh, Buckley. Buckley versus Precythe. I mean, so so uh, stretching our boundaries a bit. I mean, listen, I just finished the unit in my national security law class on interrogation of terrorism suspects into which the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment actually at least fits to some degree. Buckley is a pretty important cruel and unusual punishment case. So so I'm gonna claim okay. right. I'm gonna claim the mantle of of one degree of separation. Okay, I like that. Transitive property or Kevin Bacon Just, approach. You know, the neighborhood play. The old neighborhood play at second base. There you go. I like it. I right. like it. Or or like the Dell match play, like the gimme putt. Indeed. That isn't. <laughs> oh Sergio, man. Yeah, Sergio Garcia lives part of the time uh, in Austin, I gather. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, don't don't make the guy angry. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then while we're on that theme and, and sort of overlapping with our Trumplandia segment we often have, um, we have this question about the Article Two obligation to take care of that the laws be faithfully executed in relation to the, de- the decision not 
to in any way defend the legality of the Affordable Care Act. So we'll talk about that. And then that will segue nicely into a more traditional Trumplandia topics. We've got some we've got some shenanigans. So there's been I mean, shock him. Um, there have been a bunch of headlines, Bobby, this week, last week about sort of the general topic of access to national security information, both with respect to the Mueller report and more generally, and security clearances, right? There's a big story yesterday about a whistleblower talking about how there were 25 different security clearance denials that were overridden by the White House. I think it will note these stories. Um, I think the time is coming, although not today, for us to do a deep dive into the sort of overlapping but somewhat distinct topics of congressional, you know, Congress's power when it comes to classified national security information, security clearances, the relevant legal authorities, the relevant constitutional debate. Um, I, you know, I feel a, I feel a deep dive. Feel a deep dive coming on. Coming on, but maybe maybe not today because there's actually enough other headline stuff. But but soon. Deep dive. Um, and I'm just going to say now we're not going to go into the military commissions today. But I just want to note two very quick developments out of the commissions, just because I forgot to mention them in the pre-show. Um, <laughs> right? I, I don't mean to sandbag you. I don't think either of these will take you by storm. I, I'll be fine. So there's a um, there's this there's this whole sort of dispute going on in the 9/11 case. Um, over access to particular kinds of evidence, right, with regard to some of the interrogation programs, et cetera. Um, there's actually a, a stay in place, right, at the moment, an administrative stay from the CMCR um, that's slowing down the 9-11 proceedings. <laughs> How can you tell? Um, well, there's that. But um, I, just want, I, I want to note that the stay is out there and that, you know, I, we're not going to discuss it this week because it's an administrative stay, but that there's going to be probably either next week or the week after we're going to have to spend some time getting deeper into the 9-11 trial and what's been going on in the pre trial proceedings, including this remarkable story that Carol Rosenberg had about the government finally admitting publicly that it actually has phone intercepts of KSM and some of the other defendants talking about the plot before it actually happened. Seems like one could pretty quickly get a conviction with those. And if we had just done this in an Article Three court to begin with, huh. this would have been resolved a long time ago. Okay, but no one listens to this podcast for us to, you know, beat the same dead horse True. that we always agree on. And let's just note then our fun frivolity. Uh, first of all, we, we've already kind of touched on our, our brackets being mostly busted. busted. Um, Although you at least have one team at in the At least I've got four. something to cheer. Although I didn't have them going further. So, yeah, fair enough. Um, so that I'm basically done for as well. Speaking of being done for, though, we're going to talk about the uh, the Thrones <laughs> Deadpool. So we are, we are in, in, in case you're counting, we are 12 days away from the season premiere of Game of Thrones. And Bobby and I, the word has apparently gotten out around the law school building because Bobby and I have both been invited to join the staff Game of Thrones Deadpool. And a Deadpool, my friends, if you don't know what it is, we, you guys stick around for the frivolity because to find out. Because the rules are the best. Like, the I, definition oh section is the best part. I was, I was so excited about this. When we were talking about pre-show, Steve, I was like, well, listen, I, here's why I think this will be interesting. And we can talk about who's going to live, who's going to die. But look at, they've got a definition section for categories like what counts as alive. This is my favorite thing, as you know. He's only mostly dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, it's an endlessly interesting uh, deal. So, um, that's right. All right. So let's start with Hassoon. Hassoon. Okay. So, and by me... the way, funny coincidence about Hassoon, right? When when the Padilla case was cleaved off and and sent to civilian criminal court, you remember where it was sent to? Miami. And where you were? I was in my. I, I was. A, I was a baby law professor. I was like, wait a second. You mean this massive headline generating national security case that I've been working on since I was in law school is literally coming to me? 
That is, I'd forgotten that you were there then. So was Charlie. Charlie was a reporter for the, Charlie was the national security reporter for the Miami Herald. Nexus of the universe. Seriously. Every, all roads lead to Miami. Apparently. Well, um, so uh, let's start with a quick recap of, of who uh, Adam Hassoun uh, was sort of in terms of the national security law universe. Uh, he was, as we said earlier, one of two co-defendants with Jose Padilla when uh, there was the trial back in 2007. The uh, This was a, a charge sheet that really interested me at the time it dropped, even before Jose Padilla was tacked onto it. Uh, but certainly once he was in the mix and, and it started generating more attention, the litigation really picked up at that point. Um, because there was a there was a motion for a bill of particulars to clarify exactly what the first charge, the lead count was 18 U.S. Code Section 956A, which is the, this is a really interesting statute. It's conspiracy to kill maim or kidnap a person outside the United States where there's the element of planning from within the United States, which is kind of interesting. I think on the show we may have talked about this previously. The This goes back, I believe, to around 1917, and the whole thing is rooted in this idea that you had uh, uh, supporters of, of Irish republicanism and resistance against British authority who were safe havening in the United States, carrying out plots here, and then executing plots back in the United Kingdom uh, as part of the, the troubles. And so the statute sort of is tailored to reflect that situation, domestic plotting for overseas harm. Uh, and it kind of does smack of and, and was an early example of what we would today recognize as a terrorism statute. So kind of particular, uh, but note that it does entail uh, a conspiracy to commit these violent acts. And so the bill, the original uh, criminal charges, somewhat vague, you might say, in the indictment describing the conspiracy. And I don't remember if it was Hassoun or Padilla who filed the motion for a bill of particulars, but there was a bill of particulars motion to flesh out exactly what was the uh, the ostensible murder plot that was the object of the conspiracy. After all, uh, a layperson would assume that with the conspiracy, there's a very specific um you know, we're going to kill this person in such and time and place, or at least at least you know who the target is. And uh, conspiracy law doesn't actually require this. I read an article called Beyond Conspiracy that basically explains all this. Uh, appeared in Southern California Law Review. Uh, yeah, Southern California Law Review some time ago. Um, the prosecutors came back by explaining that the conspiracy was more or less coextensive with the broad Salafist extremist movement that was associated with and certainly... Uh, punctuated by al-Qaeda, but not necessarily limited to al-Qaeda. So it was a really, really broad conception of murder conspiracy built around the idea that look, there's this whole uh, whole wide swath of individuals who hope in, in for various theologically inspired reasons to commit acts of violence in various places that will be unlawful. And that as a whole was the murder conspiracy that was prosecuted and resulted in the conviction of Hassoun, uh, Jayusi, the other co-defendant, and Jose Padilla. Now, there were also there also were material support charges under 18 U.S. Code 2339A. Um, I kind of emphasize that. I emphasize this in part because it's interesting in its own right, I think, but also because some of the coverage has sort of depicted this as, well, he got 15 years for support to uh, extremists overseas. 
Well, no, he was he got he got 188 months uh, convicted on a murder conspiracy charge, albeit one that was framed really broadly. But it was murder conspiracy; it wasn't just material support. So he served his time. It's as we said last week. Some of these 15, 20 years. I had like a Jean Valjean thing moment. He served his he served his time for 19 years. He served his time. I definitely don't (laughs) equate this dude with Jean Valjean. Uh, Two four six zero one. I'm saying Valjean got a stiffer sentence. Oh well, yeah, French penal code practices pretty pretty tough. So uh, so he's not American. He was in the country, uh, I think, on a, a visa that he I think was originally picked up for overstaying the visa. Guy's born in Lebanon, but he's Palestinian, and Lebanon does not recognize him as a citizen. They won't take him back. Um, the 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 Palestinian Authority, the PA, has said they would take him back. I believe the West Bank Authority has. Uh, but Israel has said, well, not on our watch, you don't. And, and, and last I checked, we're, we're in a very pro-Israel mode at the moment. Um, oh, you mean as, as a nation? Uh, just, I, mean, I just oh. mean like the, you know, the, 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 the Trump administration is, is, is recognizing more and more territory as Israel. Oh, I see. Uh, well, there is that. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, either way, whether, whether the, the administration is supportive of Israel or not, uh, the Israelis aren't going to let him back in there. Right. And so he, there's a dilemma here. Uh, a, so, dile- a dilemma that, by the way, happens a lot in immigration law, right? That wholly apart from terrorism national security cases, there are a class of individuals who are in immigration detention pending removal, but to which no, the, where there's no country to which they can lawfully be removed. Right. So let's call this the purgatory scenario. That sort of captures the idea. Krakosia. What's that? The Terminal, the Tom Hanks movie. I've never seen it. I've heard um, it's good. It, well, so stuck in limbo. Yes. Um, so what happens? Or what has happened? So um, Hassoun finished serving his sentence in October of 2017, right? He's moved into immigration detention. Um, the Supreme Court in Zadvitis versus Davis, a case we've talked about before, um, held that the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment imposes a basically six-month default, right? Okay. That, that for non-citizens facing deportation or removal, um, the government doesn't generally have the authority to hold them for more than six months if there's no reasonable, if it's not reasonably foreseeable that they're going to be removed in the near future. Um, the, the critical caveat to Zadvitis, which as we mentioned before, was the last Supreme Court decision before 9-11, um, was Justice Breyer's majority opinion goes out of its way to say, of course, we're not dealing with national security terrorism cases where there might be special justifications for continued detention. Right. So if we have a non-national security case, run-of-the-mill visa overstay, um, the person can be held only for six months as a default. If the government can show that, look, we're working on it, we're getting close. They might get some latitude, right? But eventually due process requires the person be allowed to, they can't be kept in limbo in perpetuity. And so sooner or later, the judge has to bite the bullet and order the release. Um, Right. And and so the theory is that that ratchets up the pressure on the government to reach some kind of accommodation. Now, just to be clear, the Supreme Court after Zadvitis made it a little bit easier on the government because in JAMA, um, the Supreme Court said it doesn't have to be the, the, the non-citizen's home country, right? It can be a third-party country. Right, which is often what happens. And which gives the government, you know, the ability to make some kind of deal with some other country. But there's still a class of cases, both national security and not, right, where six months comes and goes and the individual is still in U.S. custody. All right, so Zadvidas gives us the footnote that says, hey, the thing we're saying here isn't, nece- isn't necessarily applicable to a national security And then case. two things happen after that. So first, in November of 2001, the government promulgates a regulation, which is still on the books today at 8 CFR 241.14, 
titled Continued Detention of Removable Aliens on Account of Special Circumstances. Okay, so um, kind of picking up the hint of the footnote to say, hey, regulatory-wise, here's how we would try to take advantage of that. And the categories, I think, are helpful. I mean, so category, like one category, aliens with a highly contagious disease. That's a threat to public safety. There you go. Right? Um, aliens attained on account of serious adverse foreign policy consequences of release. Aliens attained on account of security or terrorism concerns. Um, and the government has basically argued that it's this regulation, 241.14, that allows them to continue to hold Hassoun in immigration detention, basically in perpetuity. I mean, right, open-ended immigration detention, because it's not just that they can't remove him today. It's that there's no, like, foreseeable future circumstance in which he's going to be removable. Now, have they, said, have they actually taken the position that I can imagine that their position, I would have imagined their position was, look, we're going to keep trying. We're going to look for a diplomatic deal somewhere. And, and that is their position. Yeah, but I okay. think the, you know, I think that there are reasons to doubt that that will be fruitful, right, even if it's aggressively pursued. So it's been done before, though, right? The one prior example, that's how it ended. They got a deal with, uh, I think, uh, was it Mauritius? Yes. Yeah. Right. But so, listen, I'm not saying it is necessarily perpetual. It is certainly open-ended. Yeah, but right? it's certainly in doubt. Right. Okay. Um, what's interesting is the the district court, um, so far as I understand it, Hassoun had filed a habeas petition um, or, or shortly after his original transfer to immigration detention, like after the six months expires, and he wins in the district court in the Western District of New York, which is where all this litigation is taking place. Um, and by the way, I think that's going to matter in, a, in, a, in, a, in an important respect I hope you get to. Um, the government then comes back and says, well, wait a second, we have authority under 241.14. What was the claim for the original win? Um, just that the government had no authority to hold them long. That, that, the Zadvitas says six months, and there's no more authority. The government didn't actually initially invoke 241.14. Right. I, I'm actually quite surprised that with without this CFR reg uh, that um, that the Zedvitas footnote hadn't come into play yet from the very beginning. Well, but you still, the government still needs a positive authority to detain. Right, right. And so, I, so you know, the, the case is now being litigated o over the scope of 241.14. So the um, Hassoun's lawyers um, are arguing, I think quite powerfully, um, that 241.14 by itself appears to be ultra virus. Um, right, that what what statute authorizes the government? Like, Zadvitas may have said it doesn't offend the due process clause. Right, you still need a statute to authorize ah. the detention in this context. And so the idea is that that uh, this section that's no different than if there was no section in. in the Homeland Security simply said, well, we're just going to do this. Right. The existence of a regulation, the, 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 there's a question about the statutory basis for the authority yeah. of the, you know, of what's now, I guess, what, um, ICE, right? Yeah, right. To promulgate this regulation, the, the former INS to promulgate yeah. this regulation. Um, what I have not, under, what, what I don't understand is why this litigation hasn't already pivoted to what to me is the much clearer legal fight which is a provision we've talked about before, Section 412 of the USA Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. um, so Section 412 of the USA Patriot Act, which is on the books today at 8 USC 1226A, no parentheses, um, is the provision that, you know, it, it's most well known for the whole sort of like hold a non-citizen who you think is a national security threat for seven days, you know, free seven days, right? Right. Um, but the part of it that I think is much more relevant here is it expressly contemplates long-term immigration detention of non-citizens whom the attorney general certifies to be a threat to national security. Sounds like exactly the statutory authority they're supposed to have Exa that ostensibly they don't. Now, maybe there's an argument that, like, you know, you can only invoke the long-term authority after you invoked the short-term authority. Mm -hmm. But that's weird to me. Like, why, yeah. why should the attorney general, why should we make the attorney general run through the traps of seven days of, you know, open, yeah, of, that, of that, whatever you want detention, yeah. followed by, like, it seems no, to me No, it like, doesn't, seem, doesn't seem plausible. Now, what, what statutory authority 
authority are they invoking, or are they? Uh, the go- I, I don't. I don't. I haven't seen the yeah. government's responsive brief yet. Okay. Right. So, yeah. so, so, in other words, the, the 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 revised habeas petition has two big claims. Right. One, the two forty one fourteen is ultra virus. Okay. And two, that insofar as it's not, it violates the due process clause. I see. Okay. Um, so, and so the answer to the latter, the government's going to say the Zadvitas footnote. That's what we're talking about here, which sounds persuasive to me. On the former, what does it? Is it clear that it has to be a statutory grant of authority? Why can't it be the government's plenary authority and inherent authority as sovereign to uh, control the removal of aliens? So it's not clear to me that the inherent that the government's inherent authority to control the removal of aliens has ever extended to the authority to detain for a long period of time, right? That's to say, like I, I feel like the there's a strong constitutional avoidance argument to want to require a statute for more than just short-term detention. So if it's just someone shows up at the border and the question is that the government have the power to hold them pending their disposition. There, I don't think you need a statute, right? But if it's someone who is in U.S. custody, who has been through the U.S. criminal justice system, I'm uncomfortable with the notion that the government can act without a statute. I, I see that. I think it's counterbalanced pretty much evenly, at least, uh, by the equally compelling argument for let's avoid uh, constraining something that runs contrary to the government's uh, you know, national security prerogatives. Well, but, so, but here, right? So this is why I think Section 412 could sort of yeah, exactly. cut no, through I, all this. I, right? I agree with you. Because I think I, you know, I wrote a paper back in 2014 about how I thought the better way to sort of close Guantanamo was to transition the Guantanamo detainees into the 412 model. And the, to me, the salutary feature of the 412 model is that even though it does authorize potentially long-term open-ended immigration detention, it is expressed that it requires judicial review, not just administrative review, every six months of the government's yeah. continuing uh, justification for detention. And unlike at Guantanamo, where all you need for detention is, are you a member of al-Qaeda? Right. Detention under 412 requires an individualized assessment of dangerousness. There's an interesting convergence there, using that word advisedly, between what you just described and what we have sort of as a de facto matter in the uh, the periodic review boards. Mm-hmm. Well, OK, so. So, so I was just to say, yeah. I, we're not there yet. Right. I mean, the government has never expressly invoked 412 in a right. post 9-11 detention case. You especially and I, to a lesser degree, have been talking for some time about how it's only a matter of time before we get some very important immigration detention cases where the issue is potentially open-ended detention of folks who have finished serving terrorism-related criminal sentences and are sitting in U.S. custody pending some potentially years down the line you know, d- uh, disposition of their removal from the country. We're here. I mean, this is the case. Yeah, I think so, too. And this, this is way too important a case, I think, for them to say, all right, whatever, just uh, you know, release them in the United States. They're going to fight this all the way, I think. And, and I think the question is, at what point do they uh, – if and when this becomes a test case for Section 412, it'll yeah, be exactly. the first such case. Yeah, maybe they're going to try this for a little while. If it looks like they're going to lose, they're going to come back. And then the manage. question is, like, how do they feel about being in the Second Circuit, right? I mean, yeah. so, so the Second Circuit – like, technically, the Second Circuit's Padilla decision from December 2003 isn't on the books. But the Second Circuit, you know, is – if I'm the government and I'm ranking circuits in order of where I think they're going to be most like deferential to the government, yeah. the Second Circuit's not at the top of my no, list. No, it's not. It's not a great location for them. This is the sort of thing that could well end up at the Supreme Court anyway. Oh, totally. So they have that fallback where obviously they feel much more comfortable there. Yep. All right. Well, so the Hassoun case, we will hear more about that. So stay tuned. Indeed. We've, we've got a new uh, potential sustaining member. This could be our new John Doe. We've I've, I've missed the John Doe case. Indeed. All right. Let's uh, talk. Just because it's been a quiet week for Nishiri. Instead of John Doe, D-O-E, let's talk about the D-E-A. How's that? Fancy transition. Um, So the story that the the story about D-E-A that it caught my eye was that the Drug Enforcement Agency was using its subpoena power uh, 
uh, first in 2008, and then increasingly over time, up until 2013, uh, to acquire basically customer records of uh, names and addresses of people who've come into stores and bought cash counting machines. Why? Well, you know, um, there are certainly legitimate business reasons to have a cash counting machine if you're in a cash-heavy uh, retail enterprise or perhaps certain other uh, enterprises. But there's no question that this is also an item that's awfully useful if you're in a black market activity like narcotics. Uh, and so it's easy to understand why a criminal investigator would have wanted to get such a list. And if, you, if you're in, as, as it started in Chicago, if you're a, a narcotics investigator in Chicago and you know there's some particular story of reason to think that local people who are involved in the drug trade are, are perhaps using. Um, what could be better than just getting a list of the, the finite number of people who've bought from them over a certain period and then just combing through it all, which is apparently what they did. They got two uh, two convictions out of uh, three months worth of records in the original instance. And this was a proof of concept that then sort of went broader throughout the DEA. And the article describes how DEA lawyers engaged in some degree of review and decided that 21 U.S. Code, Section 876, that's just the generic uh, criminal investigative subpoena authority of the attorney general in cases involving narcotics investigations, where you can get witnesses or records, quote, uh, which the attorney general finds relevant, there's the key word, relevant or material to the investigation. Since these were not requests for specific, like, hey, we found this cash machine, you, it came from your store, will you tell us who bought this one? But rather, relatively untargeted uh, inquiries into, hey, everyone who's bought cash machines over a certain period of time, just give us the whole lot. Um, the analogy here to bulk collection under Section 215 of telephone metadata obviously kind of jumps out, and that's mainly the framing of the story that we're seeing. Steve, I think the story's... Super interesting. Okay, first of all, it stops as soon as the Snowden story came out and 215 came into the microscope. It's like, oh, wait, we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe. Well, just, oh, I, it occurs to us now. It's, <laughs> it's apparent that perhaps this is going to be not so persuasive in the eyes of others. And apparently, the article says that FBI, in particular, once they learned about it, had started questioning whether this was really a proper use of their administrative subpoena, author sorry, their criminal investigative subpoena authority. Um, I taught this uh, as, a, as a teaching moment in class early this morning, Steve, and it was interesting because uh, someone very insightfully said in class, you know, in some ways they're much more bothered by this than they are about the Section 215 bulk metadata program. They, the theory was, and I found this pers persuasive, with 215 metadata, everybody's impacted theoretically, but as an, as an investigative consequence, almost nobody's really impacted because what they're doing is contact chaining in rare instances and, and not finding much, not doing much. Okay. Whereas with the cash, the bulk collection of records across, say, several months or several years at, at a finite number of stores, every uh, presumably every single one of the records they then turned up became the object of individualized, at least initial database searches, op probably open source searches, trying to see, hey, anything suspicious to indicate that that person doesn't have an obvious right. business so, reason to so buy the this. So the odds that a particular individual American, right, whose data was captured as part of the program, yeah. was then subjected to further investigation are dramatically higher. Dramatically higher. And so I actually found that persuasive. Yeah. Um, it kind of speaks to this idea that doesn't cut ice with some people. But I'm, I'm not sure the law makes the distinction in those cases. Well, no, no. The statutes are identical in both cases. They just say relevant. The third-party doctrine would presumably be identical in the same cases. Uh, exactly so. But I think as a policy matter, like, is this an interesting story? Yeah. Why, I think it's a much more uh, 
much more justified reason to be unhappy than in the original uh, two fifteen metadata program. So uh, can I can I can I take the position that I have problems with both of them? Of course, and and so <laughs> someone else in the class said, well, you know, neither one of these makes me happy. And of course, you could not have a problem with both of them yeah, too. Yeah. But um, interesting also just how little the story this is. Right, like, like you know, this part of it is the lapse in time that, like, this was abandoned six years ago, right? And like that's right. You know, it's not currently happening. But also part of it's just like, I mean, this is this. I think it still would have been a huge headline, you know, as recently as two or three years ago that this had happened, and now it's like, ah, eh, whatever. Compared to what's going on today, this is like nothing. Yeah, right. Well, that's true. Well, and there's there's sort of the first mover advantage the original story has, <laughs> right? Like, wow, I didn't know bulk interpreting the word relevant to mean you can get everything in bulk as opposed to targeting the particular individuals' records. Well, we've we've certainly heard that story ad nauseum and you kind of have to have some inside pre-knowledge of how this all works to, to really see where this new story fits in let alone to see how it might be more interesting Oi. yeah all right speaking, uh, of, sh- speaking of things that might be more interesting yeah what do you got you want to talk about kareem yeah let's do so again long-time listeners will know that we've covered uh, Bilal kareem's story it originally is Bilal kareem and Ahmed zaidan a journalist operating in the uh, syria area who both were claiming that they they thought they were on the kill list uh, for U.S. airstrikes. And so uh, Kareem in particular is a U.S. citizen. Zaidan was not. Uh, the district court had dismissed the claims by Zaidan on the grounds that the inclusion of Zaidan on the kill list was too speculative. But citing uh, Kareem's complaints... Uh, representation that there were at least, I think, three to five instances of near misses, including one that was later determined definitely to have been a Hellfire missile. Um, the court said, well, but not speculative. There's more than just speculation going on here. You may be on, maybe it'll turn out you're not, but you may be on that kill list so your case can go forward. There was other aspects of the ruling, and we, we aired this out in great detail um, last summer. So there's since then, oh, let me just add, when when this dropped last summer, I did a long lawfare post about it. And the final sentence of my post said, well, you yeah. know, there's probably going to be some state secrets privilege issues here. Well, sure enough, since then, the government has moved to dismiss on state secrets privilege grounds. It's almost like our predictive capabilities are much better when it comes to stuff we know. Almost like we have zero qualifications for anything, for anything else. else. And maybe one or two for this job. Indeed. So uh, so we've got this case out there now, and it's not produced a ruling yet. But um, I think earlier today we saw the uh, the opposition to the motion to dismiss, the, the Bilal Kareem's opposition. And to me, it sort of, if I read it correctly, and I, I admit to only having read it on the fly, it sounds as if what's going on is is Kareem is arguing, and Reprieve is the organization representing him, yep. Reprieve is arguing that at, at a minimum, the, uh, let me back up, they point out that if it were a situation of, uh, if it was something involving criminal prosecution, then insofar as the prosecution brought up matters subject to the state secrets privilege, the privilege would have to give way to the criminal defendant's constitutional rights, including especially due process rights, insofar as those materials or that information was relevant. Now, as we've talked about in our state secrets deep dive, the rule is the reverse with civilian cases ordinarily. That is to say, the burden falls on the plaintiff. It doesn't fall on the government. So the government can't rely on state secrets privilege ultimately in criminal cases if the defendant's constitutional rights are in the way. But it normally doesn't work that way in civilian proceedings. Sorry, yes, civil proceedings. Uh, Reprieve is arguing that that rule should not extend to a situation where someone's life is on the line. So by extension of uh, almost a... Almost a, uh, you know, greater includes the lesser or vice versa. Yeah, I guess that's it, right? Greater includes the lesser. If 
uh, if well, never mind that attempted uh, analogy. The point is, if that's <laughs> the case for putting someone in jail to take their liberty to put them in jail, surely it must also be the case as a matter of the due process clauses imperatives. Uh, in the case where someone has survived a standing challenge and is arguing that their life is on the line, albeit not from a criminal proceeding. Uh, though you know me to be pretty hawkish on the state secrets privilege, I find that argument pretty interesting. I, 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 I do not reject it out of hand. Yeah, and it's certainly one of first impression, right? I mean, we've never had a case where the courts have considered sort of the counterbalance between the state secrets privilege and the literal deprivation of life. Did Bates in the al fathers litigation ever advert to it or did he punt on state he punt secrets? On, he punted on state secrets because he focused on political questions. Okay. So so there is that. Um, so I think that's very interesting. Now, here's the interesting thing. So let's say there's something to it. Uh, possibility one is that the impact of saying that the government must actually bear the burden and give way and disclose some things uh, is different depending on what the thing is to be disclosed. Mm-hmm. The, the opposition brief to me seemed to really emphasize wanting to confirm that indeed he's on the kill list. And treating that as the first thing that, if nothing else, they want that confirmed. And if I read it right, it felt like they were saying there, there may be other things where that should stay secret. And the, the gist of it seemed to be, let's decide this on an issue-by-issue basis as various factual allegations and claims come up. Um, it seems to me that's that's a sensible litigation strategy in the short term because that would certainly enable the case to to get by uh, an eventual motion for summary judgment that that requires him to prove he was on the kill list. Um, but to actually get through to the litigation of the matter, you're going to have to get into if he is on the kill list, why is he on the kill list? Right. And who are the sources and methods that ostensibly that probably said things about him or revealed things about him? What were the who was surveilled? Um, and it's much harder for me to see the court ultimately overriding the state secrets privilege in those contexts. I think that's right. I mean, I, yes, I think that's right. I think the question is, is there a way to const- is there a way on the plaintiff's side to construct the litigation, right, in ways that you can get to the heart of the matter without getting into a state secret? And I think, you know, the best way to do it is iteratively so that you sort of, you know, make it as sort of hard for the government to say that this specific issue is a state secret. Whether you can get all the way to actually like some kind of sufficient quantum of evidence to actually resolve a motion for summary judgment, I don't know. All right, so we're going to continue to watch that space. We're basically teeing up a bunch of cases. I mean, I, you know, the, I mean, this is part of what keeps us going is that there's all this interesting stuff happening, and I, I mean, I, it's getting harder and harder to keep track of it all. I know it's actually nice to have the the leisure this week to talk about things that have not yet produced their opinions. Indeed. Hey, who knows? Maybe some clerks and judges are listening and are helping them. Uh, actually, we're not helping them at all. I, I would imagine. But at least know, with, with the rise of baseball season, it's also the time for major league references, right? Oh yeah, and you, what do you have in mind? You can't, you can't say "goddamn" on the air. Nobody's listening. Ah, nobody's listening. God bless what, Bob what, Uecker. One hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. You can't say "goddamn" on the air. Ah, nobody's listening. But, but that, Major League One, classic. Ma- Major League One, correct. <laughs> all right, not uh, to be confused with Major League Two. No, certainly not. And uh, and we won't we won't discuss. No, we won't discuss the movie that will not the, the other movie the 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 the, the, the not quite Major League Three. It, <laughs> it was so bad they didn't even bother to put the number three at the end of it. She said, "Hey, here's another one. Straight to video, my friends." Uh, what about our con law roundup? We have a Supreme Court decision on the cruel and unusual punishment clause. The yes, Amendment. So, so I, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I really think I, I have a piece coming out in Politico later today um, that describes the Supreme Court's decision yesterday in Bucklew versus Precise, Bobby, as the real beginning of the post Kennedy era on the Supreme Court. Um, and let me say a quick word about both why I think that and why I think it's relevant to our podcast. Right. So the question in Bucklew versus Precise, this is one of those, you know, really depressing. Um, lethal uh, sort of uh, death penalty method cases, 
Um, right. And so for for all of the, you know, deeply informed, deeply passionate public debate over the death penalty, you know, there's been such a judicialization of the death penalty. I mean, yeah. our colleague Jordan Steichler, his sister Carol Steichler have a book called Courting Death about how, you know, we've converted this into a series of complex doctrinal questions that have nothing to do with the underlying idea behind the death penalty. So it's all the tinkering with the machinery of death. Indeed. Thank say. you, Justice Blackman. Um, anyway, so so the plaintiff in this case, uh, Russell Bucklew, has an extremely rare medical condition, um, the net effect of which is that the ordinary way that Missouri carries out lethal injections um, would basically torture him, um, right? That he would, instead of actually being killed by the protocol, he would die by suffocating on his own blood because of the effect the drugs would likely produce with regard to the, tu- the blood tumors that, that his condition creates. Interesting. Okay. Um, I, you know, I mean, I, clearly, that's pretty sympathetic. Well, I mean, I, it's hard to be sympathetic to anyone on death row, but it's a serious issue, it, right? It, if we are going to apply the Constitution to the method of execution, right, if we're going to say right. we can't, you know, there are, there are limits to what you can do even in the context of taking someone's life, which at least I think is, is fair. All right. Um, the Supreme Court had, in a pair of earlier cases, um, Bayes versus Rees and Glossop versus Gross, um, generally made it quite difficult right, for plaintiffs to challenge execution methods, um, but left open the possibility that you could have like an as-applied challenge where a, a uniquely situated plaintiff could have right. a unique challenge. And this seemed to be the perfect case for that. Um, the court yesterday says no, right, by a five to four vote. Um, by itself, I don't know that that's like a real sort of shift in focus. I mean, Kennedy is in the majority in Bayes in rejecting a, a, a methods challenge. He's in the majority, he's in the five-four majority in Glossop. But there are a couple of features of the opinion that really struck me as sort of post-Kennedy. So first, um, Justice Gorsuch writes in the majority opinion, and his entire articulation of what cruel and unusual punishment is for Eighth Amendment purposes is focused on originalist uh, understandings, on sort of 1791-based understandings of what cruel and unusual punishment was. Um, Without relitigating the virtues and vices of originalism, um, that's not what the Supreme Court has done, right? That, that the Supreme Court has for decades measured what punishments are unusual yeah. by reference to what the Supreme Court in 1958 called evolving standards of decency. Exactly, which is why there are some things that went on at the founding era that would be utterly shocking to us if done today that are thought to have become over time uh, – cruel and unusual when they weren't at the time. Right, and, and, and some that might still be controversial today. I mean, right, so Justice Kennedy um, relies upon evolving standards of decency to throw out the death penalty for those with intellectual disabilities, right, to throw out the death penalty for juveniles, um, to throw out juvenile life without parole, to throw out the death penalty for non-capital offenses. And these are all, to cer- certain extent, flashpoints in the originalism debate, right? This is this is in many ways sort of a microcosm of all these interpretive right. I, I mean, I, listen, I, if we had more time, if this were a con law podcast, I'd try to argue in some detail that if ever there was a provision in the Constitution right. that was susceptible to evolving, you know, interpretive understandings, the word unusual, right? I mean, right. like the... Right. It connotes a, a reference to contemporary circumstances. More so than right. lots of other it, commerce. Is, to, to sum up, one can be a very committed original, say, original public meaning originalist and believe that the original public meaning and intent of this particular clause was it would reference whatever the circumstances are of your time. Right. I mean, just like excessive fines, right? Like, I mean, you know, if, exactly. if, if we're going to be, if we're going to take a, a static approach to excessive fines. Right. You can't control for inflation. You're going to have a real problem. Um, parking tickets are unconstitutional. Yay. There is something to this. Hey, hey. Um, so all this is to say that this is a very important move 
that the majority makes in Bucklew without explaining it, yeah. without even acknowledging which, it. Which, which is, makes it more of a harbinger than a, than a holding, changing the way we talk about the doctrinal meaning and this, of Which has huge consequences way beyond this topic. Absolutely. Okay, so that was number one. Number two, um, the majority opinion goes out of its way to um, complain um, about the delays that often arise in capital cases. Um, and just the amount of time that transpires between the underlying crime, which I don't mean to condone by any stretch, right, um, and the ultimate ability of the state to carry out the sentence. Um, this is a common theme in a lot of especially conservative judges' critiques of litigation challenging the death penalty, but it wasn't an issue in Bucklew, right? Like Missouri had never tried to argue that like his, if you look at the posture of Bucklew itself, this was not an 11th hour challenge, right? He had been trying to raise his claim for as long as there had been a death sentence in place. I mean, there was, you know, it was sort of a gratuitous discussion. Um, and then it, it had the effect of provoking, when we talked last month about the, the Supreme Court's, I think, controversial lifting of the state in the Alabama death penalty case, right. where the, the inmate wanted a Muslim imam in the chamber with him, yeah, and yeah. the policy was only to have a Christian minister, um, right? They end up relitigating that in this opinion. So Justice Sotomayor says, I don't know why you're talking about delay. Like, this is a real, you know, it's not implicated in this case. And oh, by the way, look at what you did in that other case. Right, like you know, bad things happen, and then Gorsuch drops this really long footnote saying the the dissent tries to relitigate this. Like this is not good. Um, well, so I I don't know if I agree that it's necessarily a bad thing. It's it certainly feels like bad form, feels untidy for them to for all air, of them to be air airing these. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's good to ventilate and and have these expressions of disagreement in some settings. I'd rather they. I think I'd rather have them do it behind closed doors, but I'm not sure it's bad for us to get these glimpses and these insights into where the, the fissures are so, on the court. Except that it's in a, in a case that doesn't turn on that, right? And so so all this is, I mean, I, I don't mean to take, I, I'm sure folks at home know which side I'm on here, but the, it's not about taking sides. It's about this to me is what, for better or for worse, like Kennedy or hate him, right? His was a moderating influence, if for no other reason, then because the unpredictability of his jurisprudence meant that the justices at both ends of the spectrum, right, oftentimes needed to try to compromise to keep him on board. So if he was your fifth vote, right, maybe you would write a concurrence as opposed to putting big stuff in the majority opinion, right? Or yeah. So in other words, his was, even though I don't think Kennedy was a moderate, he was a moderating influence just by dint of how his jurisprudence, you know, pr produced compromises that otherwise the justices might not have been inclined to reach. It's interesting to ponder, does being a moderate, has, has it become defined by having some flexibility such that it's not entirely predictable where you're going to come out on things? Uh, that's a, I mean, that's a messier conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah. um, all this is to say that I think what we saw in the opinions yesterday, for better or for worse, is, the, is, is what the court's going to look like without a moderate. Right, that, that for all the talk about how John Roberts is now the median, because he is, right, Roberts signs on to the majority opinion without a word. And so this to me, it, it's a big deal both because of the substance of the Eighth Amendment analysis, which has, I think, indirect implications for our field, and then sort of more broadly because, you know, this is to me the real post-Kennedy court, which is just like in Congress when there are no more moderates, right, everyone runs to the flanks. You know, I fear that that's where we're heading in a lot of these you know, ideologically charged, high-profile cases. It could be. As well. It could be more of a barbell court. I will say, just on the on the observation, Ooh, barbell about, court. You like that? Yeah. Barbell court, coined, coined, trademark. Um, Roberts, I think, is very much a moderate on some issues. It happens not to be the death this, penalty. This one, right? Um, okay. Uh, 
Well, staying with Khan Law. Ah, Article Khan 2. The, Trump the, idea. The president has executive power, and this entails a duty to execute the laws. To take See care that, that the laws, laws be faithfully, faithfully executed. executed. So, um, nonetheless, there's long, long been this question, whether it's driven by the need to parcel out carefully and triage scarce ex- uh, uh, enforcement resources, or instead, the more interesting scenario where there's doubt or outright disbelief that a otherwise valid federal statute is itself constitutional, um, this question of whether and to what extent it's proper or perhaps even necessary for the executive branch not to enforce the laws, and not enforcing includes not defending it in court. So I actually, think those are, I actually think those are very different. The two. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's I, start there then. Let's, so, What's the difference between declining to enforce versus declining to defend? So declining to enforce is an offensive choice, right? Mm-hmm. That is to say— I'm um, not going to allocate FBI resources to go investigate this particular type right. of— no, no government has the resources to enforce all of its laws all of the time. And so it is inevitable—it would be inevitable even without the Take Care Clause, Bobby, right? Yeah. That there would have to be some right. choices. So the, so the triage, the resource-driven triage function, that's unavoidable. The much more interesting case is the, yeah, we don't want to enforce that because I think that law that my predecessor signed is unconstitutional. So I still think, right, that there's more flexibility in the non-enforcement context um, on the ground that, you know, if I have the right as the president to not enforce this law, even though I think it's, unco- even though I think it's constitutional, then presumably I also have the right to not enforce it because I think it's unconstitutional, right? That is to say, you know, if you accept the notion that there is at least some modicum of enforcement discretion that's part and parcel of the executive power, I feel like that discretion shouldn't just turn on constitutional opposition, but also resource prioritization. I would include both for sure. But even when it's so, the flip side though is I would I don't think it has to be a resource driven thing. I think it could just be a choice to I decide. I think this is unconstitutional. Now, now I think Congress can constrain. Like, so I don't think it's absolute, right? So I think there are it's you know there's a difference between prosecutorial discretion, right? I, I don't think the president or the attorney general or the justice department ever must bring an indictment, right? Versus like, you know, enforcing tax laws, right? Like I right. think Congress has some ability to make civil enforcement mandatory without offending constitutional limits. Where things get much messier, right, is the duty to defend. Yeah. Um, because there's been, for about as long as there's been a justice department, there's been a tradition um, that the justice department will defend federal statutes that are challenged on the grounds that they're unconstitutional, so long as reasonable grounds exist, right? That is to say, even if the president doesn't like said federal statute, sure. right? That the, that the statute will be defended if the government is of the view that reasonable grounds exist to defend the statute. Um, and this is, there's no statute that commands the government to do this, but DOJ, there, there are statutes that basically require DOJ to tell Congress when they're not defending. Mm-hmm. Um, and DOJ yeah. has looked at those statutes as sort of reinforcing this tradition. Right. It's it's clearly a, it's a salutary tradition yeah. in general. Um, it's an admirable tradition. Uh, I don't see how it can bind the president if, and this is a big yeah. if, if there's a good faith belief that the statute in question is unconstitutional. So this is right. So so this is all with with an eye toward the the latest challenge to Obamacare, right? So. Um, I want to distinguish between the Trump administration's initial position, which I think is defensible, and its new position, which I think is not. Okay. Um, so Obamacare, um, the the sort of one of the core provisions of Obamacare, obviously, is the individual mandate. Um, in 2017, as part of the big t- Trump tax bill, Congress zeroed out the penalty, basically mm-hmm. that if you don't carry minimum essential health insurance, nothing happens to you. Right. Um, you can't even have your you you can't even have any money deducted from your taxes. Right. Um, this was designed to do through the back door 
what Congress had repeatedly been able to do through the front door, which is to kill the individual mandate. Because the theory was that if there was no penalty, then, of course, um, the theory on which Chief Justice Roberts, for a 5-4 majority, had upheld the individual mandate in 2012, that it was a penalty, is out the window. Right. Um, I actually think that's too clever you mean, by half. That it, that it was a tax. That, right. Yeah. Well, that was a tax because it was a penalty, right? That it was a tax because yeah. it was being enforced right, through. But, right. But that, right. Got, that triggered the tax power. And that now the trigger for the tax power is gone. Right. And so, the, which leaves you, just to close the loop on that, uh, to go back to Sibelius, leaves you only with the Commerce Clause justification, which Sibelius rejected. Right. Um, so, it's not clear to me that you can't still say it's a tax even if there's no penalty, um, right? I mean, that's 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 where we go. Uh, it's also not clear to me how any of these plaintiffs have standing, separate issue. Um, so Texas and a bunch of other red states sues the federal government and says, we think this provision, the individual mandate, and the two provisions that go hand in hand with it, the community rating and the guaranteed issue, basically the pre-existing coverage stuff, must fall with it, right? And Texas says, the rest of the ACA, which Bobby is right. dozens and right, dozens right, sure. of stuff of provisions. Right. They say it's not severable. In it's the not severable, sense. so the whole statute has to fall. The Medicaid expansion, mm-hmm. opioid treatment, HIV. I stuff. assume their, their argument is that the financial predicate for all of this was that you have such a uh, such a comprehensive set of people in the market mm-hmm. that it, it's what sustains the model. And if you take this piece out, the the larger expansions and everything else all fall apart as well. Right now, there are two big it's problems. A Jenga theory. Right, there are two big problems with this. First, that exact theory is what. A five-four majority of the Supreme Court rejected in Sibelius, right? That that um, even on even after finding even after finding that the Medicaid expansion was unconstitutional, right? The court said the whole statute is not unseverable. Um, presumably, that should follow. Second, um, the question is actually not whether the original Congress wanted this to be severable. It's whether the Congress that passed the tax bill wanted this to be severable. And the Congress that passed the tax bill, even while it zeroed out the penalty for the individual mandate, passed a whole bunch of other things. Right, reinforcing right. the rest Cle- of the ACA. clearly intending to be for the rest of the ACA yeah, to survive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. No, I think that's right. So, so, we so, were, so yeah. I've always thought the severability argument was nuts. Um, and initially, at least, so did the Trump administration. So it, even though the Trump administration made a big show out of refusing to defend the individual mandate, which I think was controversial, because I think reasonable grounds do exist to continue to defend the individual mandate, the administration said, "But we do think it's severable." Yeah. Um, so then, we'll defend the rest of it. Right. Then Judge O'Connor ruled. Um, that the mandate's unconstitutional and it's not severable, right? Basically siding with the states in what to me was a deeply problematic decision, but be that as it may. Um, And the blue states that had intervened um, appeal to the Fifth Circuit. So the government announces last week that it's now going to defend all of Judge O'Connor's opinion. In other words, the DOJ is now going to take the position that the whole statute, not only that the individual mandate's unconstitutional, but that the whole statute's unseverable. Um, and it comes out not long thereafter that this was a decision made by the political folks in the White House over the objections of Attorney General Barr, HHS Secretary Azar, and White House Counsel Pat Cipollone, right? That is to say, over the objections of the three most important constituent actors in this whole story for purely political purposes. And this is where I get off the train. Like, I have a problem with the initial decision not to defend, because I think there was a reasonable basis to defend the initial mandate. I have a huge problem with DOJ taking a position in court it believes to be unreasonable solely because of the political direction of the White House. So there's a distinction between a situation in which we think that the president is acting for reasons other than the one possible good justification, which would be a true belief 
that this is unconstitutional for whatever reason. I, I have right. thought about this carefully, yeah. and, it is, and I, I, my legal opinion, and the president is entitled to his own legal opinion, mm-hmm. and if the president writes a memo that says, I have come to the conclusion that the statute is not severable, like, right. fine. Right. Well, so that's what I'm getting at. So uh, let's imagine a world in which it's not President Trump, it's, it's President Bush in the same situation somehow. Yeah. It's President Jeb Bush. Yeah. And so the situation arises. He, he His own lawyers, the DOJ lawyers and others, the White House counsel, they, so all, no reasonable they all think O'Connor's got it wrong, actually. Yeah. But O'Connor, federal judge, thinks that this is, in fact, not severable. And Jeb looks at this and thinks, I think the federal judge has got it right. I disagree with my AG. The executive power is vested in me, yep. not the AG. Correct. And so I'm going to go ahead and direct them. This is my directive. We're, we're going to defend O'Connor all the way, and we're going to change our position, even though it's not your preferred position as AG. That, to me, would be it would be edgy but defensible. Um, I think the root of the problem here is that no one really thinks that Trump's done anything like that that has any legal view about this at all. I mean, unless the three separate stories, one in Politico, one in the New York Times, one in the Washington Post, unless they are all wrong, right? They all separately relay accounts of, of meetings where it was Mick Mulvaney not offering any legal analysis, but just saying we need to do this for the politics. Sure. And just the notion that the Justice Department is going to stand up in court and refuse to defend a federal statute where it believes there are reasonable grounds to defend at least the severability, right, at least the rest of the ACA, and refusing to do so purely because of political decisions made by the White House strikes me as entirely anathema to the idea that the Justice Department is entitled to any institutional credibility, any respect for taking positions that are above and above. All sorts of policy consequences and harms here. The the interesting question is, is it really possible, is there any remedy here if if we stipulate that there's a possibility of doing this the right way, but this fact pattern happens to be a a bad faith application or invocation of the ability to not defend? Um, Is it really a path that the courts could ever go down pretty skeptical that it would be. So it's really more of a debate internally about the norms. And we can look at this and say, oh, that's too bad. This isn't how it should go. And we can speak out and criticize it. But I don't think we can say, I don't see how we can say that there's there's a line that we can identify and enforce. I'm not talking about – so listen, I'm not talking about anything that can be legally enforced. Yeah. Um, I think that this administration has shown over and over again that it has no interest in the long-term institutional credibility of the Justice Department. But this is a self-inflicted wound to that, right? That like, you know, what judge now is going to not ask DOJ anytime you have a high-profile case like this? Is this actually your position or is this just what the White House told you to do, right? I, I mean, I don't see that coming up terribly often. I mean, what, what would that look like? A, an act, a question from the bench? Yeah. It, it, this ha- wait, this happened during the Obama administration. Well, it's just going to happen all the time. I, I, there I'm were, just judgment, saying, I don't there see were judges this during the Obama the administration who, like, in, who, like, you know, yelled at the DOJ lawyer, "How dare you change your position? This is not what you're supposed to do." Like so, Scalia so, did it, right? But, but to your point, that, so this is something that's already been happening. This isn't no, some no, new no, novel. But, but hold on a second. But this is this is my point, and I want to make this as clear as possible. What happened last week is, to me, one important step worse than anything that happened during the Obama administration. Like the Obama administration got in big trouble for refusing to defend DOMA. Although actually, it was much more complicated. They didn't refuse to defend DOMA. They said a higher standard you applied, we would defend DOMA if it's rational basis, leaving that aside. Um, that was DOJ's conclusion. Sure. That was Holder. No, I, I see what you're saying. Right? When, it's, when, when the attorney, so contrast that with Sally Yates, right, who refused to defend travel ban 1.0 because she did not think there was any reasonable basis on which the government, on which the Justice Department could defend travel ban 1.0. And she, to me, did the absolute right thing, which said, I am the acting attorney general of the United States, right? I will not walk, I will not myself or instruct my subordinates to walk into court and defend this nonsense. And President Trump fired her 
And that's the way this is supposed to work. And so you're, you're assuming that based on the reporting that Barr and others have that same degree of, of viewpoint in their mind that Yates had about the legality of the argument that their, in, their institution would then go forward and make. That may be the case, may not be the case. And either way, that's telling. So one of two things is true. Either Bill Barr actually believes there's no reasonable basis on which to, uh, on which to defend the severability of the ACA, Right, which to me would be a deeply alarming legal position, right? But it's what Judge O'Connor said. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, we, we do have a, a federal court. Opinion yeah, on but this. It's- and we also have tons of analysis. Like we have tons of commentary from across the political spectrum explaining why that decision was preposterous. But leaving that aside, I, I have a hard time treating it as manifestly unreasonable. Really? You, you think that it's it, it was basically frivolous? I, the federal think, judge's opinion is just like so wrong; it's frivolous. I think the severability analysis, not the not the ACA, not the not the yeah. mandate discussion. Yeah. I think the severability analysis is borderline frivolous. I do think that. Yeah, no, I can see that. Um, <laughs> but but anyway, I am positing that the media accounts are right, and that Barr did not believe that this was the correct path, and that Barr actually does believe that there are reasonable grounds on which to defend the rest of the ACA. In that circumstance, and I, we're, gonna, we're about to go back down the same rabbit hole we go down every time we have this conversation, um, I think the attorney general has no choice but to either refuse to defend and force the president to fire him, which is what Sally Yates did, or to resign. Because what is your job as the – your job as the attorney general, right, is to be the nation's chief law enforcement officer and is to preserve not just the, the constitution, the rule of law, but the credibility of the agency that you head. If, the, if your agency is showing up in court and making arguments that are for purely partisan political reasons when there are good faith arguments to the contrary that by tradition you're supposed to make – I don't know what you're doing. So I think there's a different ethical, and this is really a rules of professional responsibility type of question. If you're the attorney who must go in and argue the case and you're going to sign the brief, for everyone who's going to sign the brief or otherwise participate, there is this question about whether you're going to contravene a norm by advancing an argument that you personally actually think is quite wrong. It's fuzzy. There's a lot of gray area there. Um, to the larger institutional question of whether the AG, this this is our recurring debate, Indeed. which we've had with respect to Dan Coates, and I continue to stand by my I know you do. There. Um, feel often vindicated about what happens. Um, I think that having Bill Barr in his position serves many, many, many hugely important values. You've identified another very important value about preserving the long-term institutional credibility of his institution. I'm not dismissing that as in any way unimportant, but it's not the only or uh, dominant consideration. There are many others as well. Um, I'm very reluctant to say that if it is as you describe, then he ought to resign. That from an inst- what's in the best interest of the country perspective, that that would be the right answer. So I think we have to separate the best interest of the country from the best interest of the Justice Department. Yeah. Okay. So even if we narrow it to that, it's it's far from clear to me the best interest of the Justice Department would be would be. Is that just because it's Trump? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So 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 then I think there's a more there's another interesting conversation which maybe we'll save for another time about whether what would otherwise ordinarily be the understanding. Right, which is in a normal presidency, um, a cabinet official would resign or force their firing before so blatantly, you know, throwing their own agency under the bus. Right, when, 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 whether we're an extremist, um, such yeah. that right, the the those normal rules get thrown out the window, and if so, what are we saving? Uh, I think we're. So it's an interesting question to, to try to be specific about what what, is, what sorts of things are we worried about? I think that the whole experience with, with uh, Attorney General Sessions, Rod Rosenstein, the, the questions surrounding the Mueller investigation, whether there be interference with it, uh, possibilities of obstruction, those are the sorts of things that worry me most. Those are the sorts of things that I'm relatively less worried, much less worried about with, with Barr 
as attorney general than I am with uh, whatever notional successor there might be. Yeah, I guess I just I, I I'm just trying to figure out. I I understand the value of that. I'm trying to figure out at what point we are sacrificing so much long-term stuff for the short-term value. And I think it's it's not obvious to me that the answer is clearly in favor of the short-term. Yeah, well, I think we can agree that it's it, these are not very quantifiable values we're trying to trade off against one another. But it's another. stuff that we ought to be discussing. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad we're discussing Indeed. it. Indeed. All right. Um, we also had, um, as I previewed at the top of the show, there's a lot of sort of security clearance-ish related Trumplandia stuff we want to talk about. Um, including this remarkable story about this uh, White House whistleblower and the 25 security clearance denials that were overridden. Um, this, to my mind, ridiculous show of the Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee demanding that Adam Schiff resign. Um, and then the related sort of questions of, you know, congressional access to classified information, presidential control of security clearances, um, what litigation rises from them. This is such an interesting and complex topic, Bobby, that I think you and I both agree we want to do it justice. Yeah, it requires a, a deeper dive than we probably want to give it at the... Uh, and it probably requires a fair amount of background, as opposed yeah. to just diving in from the top. Like, we probably have to actually build up some of the stuff. So so we are planning, dear listeners, in a, one of our future episodes, although we're not necessarily sure which yeah. one just yet, um, more on this. It's not that we're not paying attention. It's that we want to be able to give you a, a, a more complete picture yeah. of we're, what the legal considerations are. We're sort of in a race against events, right? Because we, I think we all sense it sooner or later sometime this year, there'll be a big blow up, maybe over subpoena or otherwise. I mean, the, So apparently the House Oversight Committee voted not on party lines today to issue a subpoena arising out of security clearance gate. Oh, um, not on with, party lines. Well, at least with Amash flipping sides oh, and joining okay, yeah. the. Yeah, what do, what do party party lines mean in this setting? Well, um, listen, are, I mean, it's it, it, it's it's pretty telling, right? That one Republican crossing over. I mean, like, well, I mean, just Amash is not exactly Mr. Party Discipline. Well, I vote with the GOP no matter. I what. agree with he's that, a, but like, he's like the the standard bearing libertarian. But on the Adam Schiff stuff, like, I was actually really disappointed to find Conaway and and Heard right signing on to what struck me as a letter that was beneath them. The the Heard in particular drew a lot of heat. Um, but, you know, he's, I, that's a complex topic. I agree. So I agree that we should talk about this and we're definitely going to do so. All right. But meanwhile, the Game of Thrones is coming. I mean, winter is coming. It is coming. We, I, I, think, I say this even though it's going to be 87 here on Thursday. Woohoo! I can't wait. Go for a nice long I, run. I, I can wait. Uh, 87 is a nice long run? Uh, too hot? Too hot. Too hot. Like, 107 is too hot. 87. I, I am a, I am a, you know, keep it in the 60s, people. There you go. Well, Which I, I is would, why living in Austin doesn't always work out well for me. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we sure do have nice winters. Okay, so. So it's it's frivolity time. And, and we want to talk about this great, I hadn't heard about this. It's the Deadpool. The Thro- Deadpool. So HTTPS slash slash uh, thronesdeadpool.com. And it's basically a bracket like it's not really brackets right because it's not a, a sequential deal it's, it's like just a fa- long it's like fantasy death it's like yeah, it's, fantasy death baseball yeah exactly the, the idea is to figure out who lives and who dies in the in final what season order. uh what episodes they drop right, in right and if you if you nail it if you get the dying of a character and the episode it happens in correct that's like 200 points and then there's a you know, like pin- method of x ex- method of death no there's none of that they I've, did <laughs> now that would be great actually but, but there's a complexity here, which is, of course, for those of you who have been paying any attention to Game of Thrones, what it means to be alive and dead is not necessarily obvious. No, and I was so psyched when I saw there were there were uh, there was a rule section on the site. Because Bobby likes nothing quite like defining the category. Buckets and categories. Metaphysical edge cases, the site says. And, well, actually, so first uh, observation we find there, it says... Alive means the character's walking around or whatever it is Bran is doing at the end of the episode 
Orr is unconfirmed dead from injuries sustained at the end of the episode. So if you're stabbed and bleeding, but you're breathing at the end of the episode. Or like the episode where um, Braun tackles Jamie and they dive into the water to avoid yeah. the dragon. So clearly alive at the end of the episode. Right. Okay, so this raises a alive, question. Alive in the sense of not dead. Yeah, if you're not confirmed dead or, or treated as dead by the other characters what, in what the What about White Walkers? That's the next thing. So if they die and come back. They're as, walking. So listen, if they die and come back as anything other than a white, they're alive. So Jon Snow is alive. Absolutely. It says here, these people are alive according to these <laughs> rules. And then it says, don't, don't at me. Uh, Jon Snore. John, sorry, I was reading John Snore. That should be a new character. John Snow, Gregor Clegane, Beric Dondarrion, and Tormund Giantsbane. All treated as alive. Um, so there you go. Okay. Uh, and that's how the show treats them. White Walkers considered to be alive. It's an interesting kind of choice. I Yes, that's okay. I don't really know enough about the underlying white walkers, but not whites. So, so the so saying. the ones so the ones with like the blue eyes, right? The ones the ones yeah. the ones with the blue eyes and the weapons that like can only be resisted and by dragon glass. and the night king and the night king himself. Yeah. But why is it clear that that's uh... yeah? Aren't they dead? Isn't the whole point that they're? I don't know. I don't know exactly. Right. So it kind of it makes some assumptions that maybe yeah. we don't know enough about the underlying yeah. lore. Uh, if you if you warg into an animal and your human body is killed, but the animal's still alive, character's alive. still alive, uh, which is pretty awesome. I, I appreciate that clarification. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you die in one episode, but then you come back in a later episode, <clears throat> Jon Snow, uh, points to be recalculated after the resurrection. <laughs> so you can lose points. You can be down for a while, but then you can surge back ahead. No, it's, no, it's the other way around. You could be up because you correctly predicted a death, and then the, the, the death comes off the board. Oh, yeah, right, right, exactly. So it's like it's like when you're playing fantasy baseball, and then there's a stat correction. Like an ERA. Yeah, like which a, inevitably like tanks your weekly competition. Um, oh, I don't do fantasy baseball. All right, so 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 let's get past. So so Bobby, you and I, I think, are both going to participate in the Deadpool. Yep. So who you got in, in in episode one? Well, let's see. Let me find my notes here. Very important. Uh, so I went for loads of deaths in episode three. Well, yeah, because three is the because we know three is the epic battle. So here, so what I think is interesting. I'll tell you who I think is going to bite it there. <laughs> um, Brienne. Ooh, Lady Brienne of Tarth. Pod, because I think that would be just no. as sweet. Yeah, I know. That's exactly why they'll do it. Uh, Sansa. Uh, Whoa, that's big. Jamie. Wow. Dario. Grey Worm. Uh, who else did I kill off in that episode? You're killing like, everybody I off know. in episode yeah, actually, three. Actually, my, my notes didn't print right beyond that. There's a bunch more. But that's but in contrast, like I so, think... So you have the, whites, you have the White Walkers like winning. I think there's going to be a lot of characters going down during the Battle of Winterfell. Um, I get Arya only to the end. I think she's going to die in the finale. She, there's too much. <laughs> their whole character is like all about death. I don't think she makes it out. No, but that would um, be the irony. I, I get it, but I just think they're going to. I think they want to. They want to hurt our feelings. The problem with Game of Thrones is, is that they've done everything to us emotionally, right? Yeah. Like, and so at this point, it's like you could you could justify any prediction on the ground that like they do that exactly. to mess with you, which is good. So I think she goes down. I think Bran survives. Um, well, someone has to be the three eyed raven. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like they got to keep that thing going. I think Samwell and Gilly survive in the baby. Um, I mean, I think, so there's a meta question here, right? Which is like. You know, whether any humans survive, I think, is a meta question about, like, who ultimately prevails in the war between the living and the dead, which, of course, is supposed to be the dominant question of season eight. So it's here. I hear you taking a position oh, the, the, that like, the humans win. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not convinced. Yeah. I mean, it's 
I, I get it that it could be like the ultimate sort of hard fantasy result, like the Night King and company sweeps across and the island has to be quarantined, and that's just the end of it. Maybe. Uh, quarantined by whom? There's no, oh, I guess, well, I guess the you're on Greyjoy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got Euron dying, but I think Theon's going to survive. Well, Theon has to kill Euron. I mean, right, you know. Yeah, it could be, you know. So I think that uh, I, I, I don't buy it. I know there's been a lot of, you know, counter fan satisfaction, uh, fan wish fulfillment. I don't. I think that some version. Oh, I have Daenerys dying. I don't have her making it out. So who's who's on the Iron Throne when the when the curtain falls? Let's see. John. Um, I got Cersei dying. Or should I say Aegon? Yeah, John Gon. Um, maybe John Gon. John Gon. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's indeterminate. Maybe they don't give you the satisfying like so. Maybe the throne goes down in dragon flames and the you know Wait, the if the, place- dra- if the if the ice dragon makes it to King's Landing, I think we can safely say like that's a bad that that's bad for the humans. Sure, but I still think they're going to win. I don't think it's going to be a the the you know the force unless they come up with some narrative that like you know look at how they ruined this world and the and the Night King is actually a great force for ecological justice or something. I don't see that being the result. Um, <laughs> and AOC comes on stage at the end. Yeah, it, it, it turns out it's a commercial for the Green New Deal. <laughs> <laughs> I think Fooled not. You. I think not. I think not. <laughs> All but just to say, I think you and I are excited. All right. I'm super excited. I want you to go fill out your bracket. Listeners, get on yours, form, form some pools, and let us know how you're doing. And then uh, we will definitely be devoting showtime to this as it goes on. I don't on. know, man. I'm, I'm, I, I, mean, I, I feel like before I do this, I have to make some really sort of deep thinking predictions about the, the shape of the entire season. No, you should do it the same way you do your NCAA bracket. <laughs> just wing it, man. How'd that work out? Exactly. Hey, the Mets are three and one. There you go. Call the season now. Seriously. <laughs> Although not even first place. That would uh, be the fighting Bryce Harpers. Yeah, yeah, the Phillies are looking good, as expected. I have to say, as someone who has reveled for years in the misery of Washington Nationals fans, like you get a little Schadenfreude out of this. I get a little. You know, there's a little yeah. bit of, of satisfaction in in the Phillies being good. Although, you know, I'd be very happy in a world in which the Phillies are good, except against the Mets. Yeah, I, you know, I wonder about their pitching. We'll see. It's a long season. I, I put no stock in the first few. You know. No, no, listen. I, last year scarred me, right? Last year the Mets got, oh, out, we to got out to a great start. eleven and one franchise record through twelve games, and I was like looking at flights for. October. Right, right, right. And then it all went downhill. And so then, so if last year has taught me nothing else, it's that, you know, a good start is good. It's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. The future. <laughs> <laughs> on, on that note, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Go check out Deadpool. And while you're there, um, predict, I don't know, which NSL podcast host will... Win all the arguments next week? Yes. <laughs> there you better. go. Yeah, keep us out of your death pools, please. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, one of us has to die first. I guess we could go on record now and just hope that we're, you know, decades into the future. I think you'll outlast me. I want I want a Jefferson Adams situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's exchange letters. Uh, right. Jefferson lives. Right? Vladek lives. Vladek lives. At least Vladek <laughs> lives. Oh, my gosh. I was wow. hoping for more of, like, the finale of Excalibur, going on a big blaze of glory, fighting the bad guys. <laughs> Which bad guys are we? The, the bad guys of national security law? The, the, whoever doesn't get the wisdom of our analysis. Yeah, okay. This is getting really macabre in a hurry. Yeah. So I think we'll just uh, st- uh, uh, stay safe out there, especially <laughs> us. Especially us. Adios.